America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And it is a great day. It is a great day for beginning a new week in this country. The uh, hearings are underway at the Senate Judiciary Committee concerning the confirmation for the nomination for the Supreme Court of uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. And uh, frankly, people on both sides, but particularly the Republicans, did a very fine job of putting this in a proper context and making you proud of our country. And it should help to reassure some people there are new journalistic efforts all over the place, two in the New York Times, two huge articles, both in uh, Sunday's newspaper, about how democracy is in trouble and democracy can't function. Uh, the, uh, the Republicans made a particular point of showing that they are going to be gracious, uh, they are going to be positive, they're going to be substantive. They won't all vote to confirm Judge Jackson, but uh, they all are treating her with the respect she deserves, that she's earned with a, uh, a sub substantive career. And she is going to be then uh, responding to all of the senators who got an opening statement. And by the way, uh, Ben Sass was great. You expect that. Ted Cruz was particularly good. And um, basically while having a few nudges about how differently they are handling this than the way the Democrats handled, oh, say, just take for an example, Brett Kavanaugh. Or you could even say Amy Coney Barrett. But uh, look, here, what is going on is an indication that, yes, democracy is alive in America. And it's hard not to contrast that with the yearning that the people of Ukraine, for which they are giving up their lives, the yearning they have for a system that will work like that, for actually preserving the uh, functioning democracy that they have fought for since uh, becoming independent, fully independent of Russia, and now defending that independence. There is a, a piece by Max Boot uh, in the Washington Post, uh, against all odds, Ukrainians are winning. Russia's initial offensive has failed. So what next? And why did deterrence fail? In other words, the United States has a formidable military. Uh, why is it that that formidable military wasn't able to deter this reckless decision to invade Ukraine that uh, that Vladimir Putin made. Uh, we will get to that. We have a, uh, a guest who has written a piece on precisely that subject, Nadia Shadlow. Uh, she is with the uh, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Hudson Institute. She'll be joining us. We'll be joined by Andy McCarthy of uh, National Review on the significance of the the Jackson nomination of the Supreme Court and the significance in the way that Republicans are handling this right now. Uh, we will also be speaking to a author of a <laughs> very controversial column 
that says that basically Republicans are acting as if they want to erase the diversity in America's past. And she's particularly aiming her fire at, um, at Governor DeSantis of Florida. But we will get to that uh, as, as well. Um, okay, first off, the idea that uh, there is a turning point in the war. Now, this can be for better. It can be for worse. Uh, nearly four weeks into the Russo-Ukraine war, writes Max Boot in uh, the Washington Post, the situation is going to bad to worse for Russian dictator Vladimir Putin. Now, by the way, is there anyone out there, anyone out there who actually doesn't celebrate the idea that things are going badly for Vladimir Putin? Uh, anyone out there who actually believes it's too bad that uh, he's not winning this war? No, it's a great blessing, and it's frankly a providential miracle, it seems to me. Uh, Gary Kasparov reported on Saturday that a joke is making the rounds in what is left of the Russian Internet. We are now entering day 24 of the special military operation to take Kiev in two days, uh, says the uh, uh, joke on the Russian Internet. The Russian offensive has been uh, culminated, a military term meaning that an army can no longer continue attacking without having achieved most of its objectives. Analysts at the Institute for the Study of War and the American Enterprise Institute, two Washington think tanks, assess that uh, Ukrainian forces have defeated the initial Russian campaign of this war. The war has stalemated. Uh, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are talking about the Russians now moving to Plan B. What is Plan B? Plan B is for a longer war. Uh, the Russians, by the way, just lost their fifth, that's right, fifth general uh, who was picked off uh, within the last 24 hours. But uh, Plan B means that they are going to concentrate on destroying cities, on uh, slaughtering civilians, uh, on basically uh, just uh, inflicting pain on the Ukrainian people. And yet there is, and it, it's truly wonderful that we have a free media in this country where those media are able to give you some flavor of what is actually happening. NBC, uh, and yeah, I know, NBC, they lean to the left. They just did a, a wonderful piece about farmers in Ukraine who are risking their own safety to go out there with Russian jets overhead to uh, make sure that the harvest gets in, that, that things are planted and grown. Ukraine has always been known as the breadbasket of Europe. They say that about one-third of all the uh, wheat, the grain, that is harvested and then uh, exported in the world, about one-third of that is Ukrainian. So this could cause this war if the farmers don't do their patriotic duty and plant and bring in the crops. They, what they are doing is as important as any soldier right now in Ukraine. 
In any event, the Russians have made the greatest progress in the south. They're close to establishing a land bridge between Crimea and Russian-occupied territory in eastern Ukraine, writes Max Boot, who is a, a very fine, by the way, military historian. After weeks of vicious bombardment, Russian troops have entered the city of Mariupol. Unless Ukrainian reinforcements can somehow break the Russian siege, it appears that Mariupol will eventually fall. But the long delay in taking Mariupol has prevented Russian troops from pivoting to try to encircle Ukrainian troops fighting in Donbass or to reinforce the attack on Kiev. The uh, situation elsewhere, even the south, is dismal for the Russians. Ukrainian troops have counterattacked and driven the Russians away from Mykolaiv. A counterattack. It's a city of 470,000 people. As long as Mykolaiv remains free, the Russians cannot attack Odessa, Ukraine's third largest city and the biggest Black Sea port, by land and therefore cannot risk an amphibious assault from the sea either. Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, is located 20 miles from the Russian border and is full of ethnic Russians. It was supposed to fall fast. But it is still not encircled and continues to hold out despite the terrible destruction inflicted by Russian artillery and rockets. There's uh, also Kherson, which is a city in the south that was already occupied. They've already had their first demonstrations against the Russians, which they broke up by shooting at the demonstrators. Uh, we will get to more on Ukraine. Uh, we will be waiting for the opening statement by Judge Jackson and more on the Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, it's hard to say that things are going well in Ukraine, but uh, you certainly can say that they're going badly for the Russians, which probably indicates that uh, in long term, in the total perspective, uh, things certainly going better than expected and uh, going in a direction that would be beneficial toward the entire world which is a, uh, a result of the war that involves the preservation of the existence and survival of an independent nation of Ukraine. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, we will be um, uh, getting back to the issue of Ukraine and also some of the the manner, and I hope no one falls for it, but it was very obvious in that big rally that uh, Putin did in uh, Moscow that we covered part of. There was a, basically his image was taken. Somebody had, <laughs> apparently they, they said it was a technical glitch. I suspect that some of the, um, the, the negative attitudes toward Putin that have emerged within Russia uh, expressed itself with that uh, glitch where he was giving his remarks to inspire all of these um, pro-war uh, sentiments that uh, had massed in, in this. Uh, they were bussed in and they were brought in in this uh, big uh, soccer stadium, but uh, where the World Cup, the World Cup had once been played there. But uh, it didn't go so well technically for Vladimir Vladimirovich. And uh, there's there's also a way at 
this celebration and in more pronouncements from the established Russian Orthodox Church and the Patriarchate, the Patriarch Kirill in uh, Moscow, that uh, show how lucky we are that we don't have the formal association of government and religion in this country. That basically it's not keeps government uh, it keeps government in its proper realm. Uh, but not having the force of God, uh, which clearly is something they're attempting to do in Russia. Um, we will uh, uh, get back to this and, and to more, but uh, first let's um, uh, just take a look at what has been happening in the hearings this morning. Now, the hearings began with all of the senators uh, giving opening statements and what was very healthy about this was a different view of the Republican Party that uh, Americans really do need to see because this will help cement the likely Republican victory coming up in the November elections. Uh, Lindsey Graham, who's always outspoken when it comes to uh, nominees for Supreme Court seats, and he's made it very clear. He believes that the right thing to do is not to say, well, you haven't picked the same kind of judge that I would have picked. The right thing to do is say, is this judge qualified? And is she someone who is a legitimate point of view for the president who appointed her? Is this somebody who can represent that point of view uh, appropriately, not whether she has a point of view that agrees with me? This is uh, the way Lindsey Graham explained that in his opening statement. This is 19A. President Biden had a choice here, and he has every right to make it. Elections have consequences. He had many qualified African-American women to choose from. He chose you. Again, congratulations. Uh, Well-deserved uh, honor here. Uh, you have worked hard all your life, and... Um, yeah, much to be proud of. I have said in the past, and I think it's good for the court to look like America, so count me in on the idea of making the court more diverse. And in the history of our country, we've never had an African-American woman serve on the court. But I also said that didn't get much coverage. I want, I want, the, I want the court to play a particular role in America. One is make it more look like the country, but also make it operate in the confines of the Constitution. That didn't, didn't get a lot of coverage. Um, so the hearings are going to be challenging okay. for you, and he, informative for the public. Uh, Judge Jackson uh, making her opening statement. A historic moment. Uh, let's listen in. I am humbled and honored to be here. And I am also truly grateful for the generous introductions that my former judicial colleague, Judge Tom Griffith, and my close friend, Professor Lisa Fairfax, have so graciously provided. I'm also very thankful for the confidence that President Biden has placed in me and for the kindness that he and the First Lady and the Vice President and the Second Gentleman have extended to me and my family. Today will be the fourth time that I've had the honor of appearing before this committee to be considered for confirmation. 
Over the past three weeks, I have also had the honor of meeting each member of this committee separately. And I've met with 45 senators in total. Your careful attention to my nomination demonstrates your dedication to the crucial role that the Senate plays in this constitutional process, and I thank you. And while I'm on the subject of gratitude, I must also pause to reaffirm my thanks to God, for it is faith that sustains me at this moment. Even prior to today, I can honestly say that my life has been blessed beyond measure. The first of my many blessings is the fact that I was born in this great nation. A little over 50 years ago in September of 1970, Congress had enacted two civil rights acts in the decade before, and like so many who had experienced lawful racial segregation firsthand, my parents, Johnny and Ellery Brown, left their hometown of Miami, Florida, and moved to Washington, D.C. to experience new freedom. When I was born here in Washington, my parents were public school teachers, and to express both pride in their heritage and hope for the future, they gave me an African name, Ketanji Onyika, which they were told means lovely one. My parents taught me that unlike the many barriers that they had had to face growing up, my path was clearer so that if I worked hard and I believed in myself in America, I could do anything or be anything I wanted to be. Like so many families in this country, they worked long hours and sacrificed to provide their children this every opportunity Judge, uh, to This is Judge Brown Jackson, nominated for the Supreme Court, making her opening statement. Uh, we will be speaking about her nomination and what it means and what the confirmation process process is going to mean uh, politically, culturally, uh, and legally with Andy McCarthy, senior fellow at National Review Institute, distinguished attorney, former prosecutor, and more. Andy McCarthy coming up. McCarthy joins us, and always an honor to have him on, particularly on a busy day like today with the uh, opening day for the hearings on the confirmation of uh, Justice-designate uh, Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson. Uh, Andy, um, have you been listening, as I imagine, in between television and radio appearances, You've been listening to a little bit of uh, uh, Judge Jackson's opening statement, right? I have, Michael, yes. And what do you think? I think she's what we expected. Let's remember now that this is not her first uh, rodeo, as uh, somebody pointed out, one of the senators pointed out during uh, the opening statements. Uh, this is the, the second time, actually the third time, that she's been uh, before this committee in confirmation hearings as a judge. Obviously, this is much more profile or high profile than the other times, but I think she's very poised and very polished and very likable. And 
you know, obviously, uh, if those were the key qualifications, I think she'd probably get confirmed 100 to nothing. But, uh, you know, the, the, real, <laughs> the real show starts tomorrow. Well, the, the one thing that struck me is, um, uh, first of all, she began by thanking the country and the, her greatest blessing being been born in the United States. And I think it's very good for everybody in the country to hear that because that's true for all of us. Yep. That's the golden ticket that we all got, uh, those of us who are lucky enough to be born here. But then she talked about religion. She talked about her her family is filled with cops. She has two uncles who are cops. Her, her brother is a cop and then volunteered for the military. Um, basically, wasn't she seem like she's trying to send a message? She talked about her husband of 25 years who's a... A doctor, I believe he's a pediatric surgeon. Um, wasn't she sort of signaling, hey, conservatives, don't be afraid of me. I'm like a, a normal mainstream American. Yeah, I think that's exactly what she's trying to do. And, and Michael, I must say, as you were describing that, what, what, first, what popped into my head for the first time, I hadn't actually thought about this, is it's kind of the way that Biden ran his campaign. You know, the, I think part of the reason that he won is because he was able to distinguish himself from the radical elements of uh, his party and the field of, of candidates. And he basically his pitch to the country was, uh, I'm not scary. I'm, uh, you know, I'm like you. I love the country. I love the police. I love, you know, um, traditional America. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm delighted to hear anybody say those things, um, but I, I, I think I'm probably with the uh, lion's share of the country that wants to um, <laughs> wants to cut the cards, so to speak, uh, and right, make sure, sure that uh, she's serious about it. Well, I was also, I heard almost all of the opening statements from the various senators, and it seems like somebody gave them very good advice, which is, <laughs> don't come across as nasty, don't be right. angry. Uh, uh, basically, this is a lady who's going to get up there and, and be sympathetic and that most Americans are going to feel the weight of what this means historically and what it means for her. Cory Booker seemed to have lost it. Did you hear Senator Booker's opening statement? I did, yes. Well, <laughs> I would call it an opening effusion. I think that was probably <laughs> more like it. But uh, yeah, he, he did seem to... Uh, I. I I was worried he was having a Spartacus moment there, you know, where he just got a little uh, unhinged. But he seemed, yeah, look, he, he seemed very uh, joyous and um, very attuned to the history and the, the historic nature of this. I have to say, Michael, I'm, I don't mean to, be, to diminish the historic nature of it, but I, I have to say, you know, we're a country that currently has uh, a black woman as vice president and who had a black woman as uh, Secretary of State, uh, as uh, I think, 20 years ago, starting. So, you know, I, I do think these milestones are worth noting. But at a certain point, I think that the, um, you know, the historic nature has less currency to it. And what we need, the brass tacks we need to get down to is what is her judicial philosophy and how will she perform the job. And uh, do you... Do you have any doubt that there will be enough uh, Republican votes? And frankly, when I say enough, well, I guess all they need is one. 
uh, to uh, secure her confirmation? I have no doubt. I think that uh, this is not a hill even politically that they would want to uh, die on, even if they thought they had a, a decent case against her. Um, you know, the fact is she doesn't change the trajectory of the court. Uh, she's going to vote exactly the way that Justice Breyer did. And uh, she's when she was well, she uh, confirmed for Justice Breyer once a she certainly did, yeah. And when she was confirmed for the Court of Appeals last year, three Republicans voted for her. Uh, I think it was Graham, Murkowski, and Collins. I expect all of them will vote for her this time around. I know uh, Graham made some noises today, like he's uh, you know he's still in play, but uh, you know I've heard that before. Um, <laughs> and I, I I think she'll I think she's going to get between three and six. Republican votes. And that that sounds uh, about right. Uh, in terms of uh, the the meaning of this, is uh, do you think this provides a, a provides some boost to the Biden administration, which has been struggling so badly, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. And you know, look, this is a chance for them, uh, you know, to to turn the page a bit away from. Uh, what's been some bad news for them. I think the problem, Michael, is that, and, and this goes to, you know, your your point about whether she has enough votes and all that stuff. I don't think this is going to be terribly controversial, and I don't expect it to be a big news item for more than a day or two. In the meantime, you know, every day people are going to the pump and seeing, you know, their eyes are popping out at the, the gas prices. They go to the stores and they, they see the food prices, um, they see Ukraine is exploding. You know, Biden's about to do this awful Iran deal, which is just like mind boggling. So I don't know how much of a surcease he gets from everything else from this. I imagine it's, a, you know, it's obviously a, a positive for him politically. But how much of one? I think it's going to be negligible. Yeah. Well, obviously, when you the upstage from Ukraine that just moments ago, uh, Russia said to a U.S. envoy, that Russian-American relations are on the verge of rupture. And uh, given how careful the administration has been not to do anything that they call escalatory, to make things worse with another nuclear power, that's got to be the overwhelming concern right now for most Americans, don't you think? Yeah, well, I, 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 I think that's right. But I would also say that when, when the United States signals to a rogue country uh, that it's not going to do anything no matter how brutal the aggression gets. I can't think of anything that could be more escalatory than that. And what, what stops this kind of stuff from happening is when the United States uh, acts like it's, it takes seriously its role uh, in the world. And I am not somebody who thinks that we need to get into uh, a, you know a military conflict where American troops are fighting in Ukraine, but I do think that when the United States signals to uh, Putin and the Putins of the world that they have basically an open field, uh, you can't expect them not to take it. 
No, that's exactly right. And I, uh, I'm, I'm just wonderful to talk to you, especially when we're so closely in line. That's Andy McCarthy, who is senior fellow at the National Review Institute, a contributing editor at National Review, former and distinguished federal prosecutor and author of Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Um, more coming up on the Jackson hearings and the war in Ukraine. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show uh, the uh, in the Senate hearing room for the Judiciary Committee the opening day of hearings uh, this um, by by the way concluding uh, on a day when uh, Justice Thomas has been hospitalized he is uh, due to uh, uh, to return to his duties on this on the court within a couple of days apparently it is not a serious hospitalization it is not covid he is suffering from some kind of infection uh but the announcement from uh clarence thomas and his family has been that he will be reading documents conferring with his colleagues electronically while he is still in the hospital and uh what it does remind everybody about of course is uh uh, how important the health of one of the strongest uh, constitutionalist voices on the court really is uh, because and also it, it's an indication of uh, why the the tendency has been and certainly has been true for uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett and for Justice designate Katanji Jackson they're people who are younger and uh, as Clarence Thomas was, he is now the longest-serving uh, justice on the court. He, of course, was appointed in 1991, I believe confirmed. Yeah, it was at the end of 91. And uh, uh, Justice Thomas, uh, he should recover completely and be in good health and uh, have many, many more years to uh, help lead the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas is 73. Um, Justice-to-be, uh, now Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, concluded her opening statement very carefully prepared, very well delivered, and she has a very winning smile, which is a helpful thing when people are watching on TV. Uh, this is uh, what she said, wrapping up her opening statement. Now, in preparing for these hearings, you may have read some of my more than 570 written decisions, and you may have also noticed that my opinions tend to be on the long side. That is because I also believe in transparency, that people should know precisely what I think and the basis for my decision and all of my professional experiences, including my work as a public defender and as a trial judge, 
have instilled in me the importance of having each litigant know that the judge in their case has heard them, whether or not their arguments prevail in court. Okay, um, and she is talking about one, one of the criticisms that is raised of her is that her her opinions are very rarely terse. They are long-winded but thorough. Uh, here is her final words of her opening statement. Listen. During this hearing, I hope that you will see how much I love our country and the Constitution and the rights that make us free. I stand on the shoulders of so many who have come before me, including Judge Constance Baker Motley, who was the first African-American woman to be appointed to the federal bench and with whom I share a birthday. And like Judge Motley, I have dedicated my career to ensuring that the words engraved on the front of the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law, are a reality and not just an ideal. Thank you for this historic chance to join the highest court, to work with brilliant colleagues, to inspire future generations and to ensure liberty and justice for all. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's probably a, a, certainly a good thing for uh, Judge Jackson that she was given the uh, the very last uh, slot to uh, make televised comments. Uh, Senator Ben Sass uh, spoke very well and very graciously, but he also pointed out, and this is something that a number of Republican senators made the point about, that they were going to treat Judge Jackson fairly, graciously, and no circus, no last-minute charges, uh, or uh, no uh, sort of inquisition about what you did in high school. Uh, I mean, she had a very fine record in high school, by the way. And so did uh, Brett Kavanaugh. But uh, let's go back to Senator Sass of Nebraska talking about uh, comparing the treatment that they are planning to give to Judge Jackson to the way that some Democrats dealt with uh, now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Listen. We started down this road of character assassination, characterization in the 1980s with Judge Bork's hearings and hearings. Senators have been engaged in disgusting theatrics ever since. The most recent Supreme Court nominee was subjected to repeated accusations that were nothing more than unfiltered religious bigotry against her. The nominee before her was accused of serial rape uh, aided by members of this committee. If this process were conducted in good faith, Miguel Estrada and Janice Rogers Brown might well be on the Supreme Court today, but their opponents lied and bullied rather than accepted principled minority judges. We've gotten so used to this kind of bullying that two years ago, 
the current Senate Majority Leader stood on the steps of the United States Capitol and screamed threats against two sitting justices of the Supreme Court that they would, quote, reap the whirlwind if they ruled in a way that didn't align with Chuck Schumer's political preferences. That's weird. We should all be able to pause and say, that's weird. That kind of behavior shouldn't happen. And he's right. And uh, here's what... Uh, Ted Cruz said, and Ted Cruz, even for those who uh, really despise Ted Cruz for whatever reason, he was excellent today. And here's his comment. No one is going to inquire into your teenage dating habits. No one is going to ask you with mock severity, do you like beer? But that's not to say this hearing should be non-substantive and non-vigorous. In this hearing, this committee has a responsibility to focus on issues, to focus on your record, to focus on substance. And one of the interesting things is the possibility that when they uh, do focus on substance, they will dig more deeply into philosophy. Uh, this is Lindsey Graham, uh, clip 19. It won't be a circus. We're off to a good start. We're off to a uh, Chairman Brassley couldn't get the first word out of his mouth before they shut down the place, so that's off to a good start. Most of us couldn't go back to our offices during Kavanaugh without getting spit on. Hope that doesn't happen to y'all. I don't think it will. Uh, as to the historic nature of your appointment, I understand, but when I get lectured about this from my Democratic colleagues, I remember Janice Rogers Brown, African-American woman that was filibustered by the same people praising you. I remember, remember Miguel Estrada, one of the finest people I ever met, completely wiped out. Didn't make it through the uh, uh, gang of uh, 14, whatever gang I was in. I've been in so many, I can't I've been in so remember. He, he didn't make the cut well-lived life just completely ruined. So if you're Hispanic or African-American conservative, it's about your philosophy. Now it's going to be about the historic nature of the pick. Now it's going to be about your philosophy. The bottom line here is when it is about philosophy, when it's somebody of color on our side, it's about we're all racist if we ask hard questions. It's not going to fly with us. We're used to it by now, at least I am. So it's not going to matter a bit to any of us. We're going to ask you what we think you need to be asked. And, and uh, that is, of course, they're right, and we have to look forward to it. I'm going to also be asking what needs to be asked of uh, Nadia Shadlow of the Hudson Institute and the Hoover Institution, a uh, former member of the National Security Council. Uh, she, um, she has a column that asks a profound question. Why didn't deterrence work against Russia? Why weren't they as afraid of the United States as we appear to be of them? We'll get to that and more concerning war in Ukraine and this greatest nation on God's green earth.